Continuing my look through Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. A mini-project designed to cover all of Stan Lee's original run on The Amazing Spider-Man. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are number 38, number 40, number 42, number 44, 46, 49, 52, 93, 94, 108, 113, 118, 125, 131, 138, 142, and 146. Covering Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man 100. With issue 101, cover dated October 1971, Stanley, who had written or co-plotted every issue since the comic's inception, took a leave of absence. Stan had been offered the opportunity to work on a film with noted film director Alain René, and to devote all his time to the project, he handed his last two comics writing gigs over to Roy Thomas. Roy had been Stan's right-hand man for many years at this point, and was one of the first fans-turned-pros in the business. Roy was fine taking over the Fantastic Four, as that was very much in his ballywick. But Spider-Man? Roy enjoyed reading the strip just fine, but didn't really want to write teenage angst and soap operatics. Added to this, Stan had left the strip on a doozy of a cliffhanger. If Stan liked to crib from Shakespeare for his plots... Roy preferred old horror movies, and for his substitute teaching gig, his first storyline mined Bram Stoker, a little scene 1957 B-movie called The Vampire, and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Stan still kept his hand in, though, as editor, rejecting Gil Kane's initial cover for issue 101 in favour of the one that saw print. Roy wasn't big on waste, though, and Kane's original cover was integrated onto page 18 of the issue. Stan was right. It's a great splash, but it would have been a lousy cover. Gil Kane's new cover, inked by John Romita, is an eye-catching beauty. A striking new villain who looks very pale and is in possession of serious fangs. Back hands our hero, still saddled with four extra arms after last issue's disastrous attempt to rid himself of his powers. Fool! says the creature. It will take more than a freak with six arms to stop a vampire. It's a really, really good cover. A Monster Called Morbius was written by Roy Thomas, with art by Gil Kane and Frank Diacoya, or Giacoya, whichever way you pronounce it, that guy did the inking. Despite my dislike of last issue's cliffhanger, the opening is well handled. Peter, understandably, freaks out references Kafka, and believes he'll at least have a new career right next to the dog-faced boy. His phone rings, and it's Gwen, offering to take him to an R-rated flick of his choice. She tempts him with two movies, the Ali McGraw-Ryan O'Neill sobfest love story, or the far racier I Am Curious Yellow. The idea of the supposed sweet and innocent Gwen Stacy suggesting to Peter they go and watch the latter is hysterical to contemplate. Tempting though this is, Peter has to make his excuses, because, well, he can't very well go out looking like this, can he? He blows her off in the most dismissive way possible, telling her he'll be out of town for a few days, so stop bugging him, okay? Coming after issue 99, where they clearly spent the night together, a hill I will die on, this comes across as especially harsh. 
The pop culture references as we enter the 70s have a more literate and intellectual bent, what with her being mentioned a few issues ago, I Am Curious Yellow and Kafka here, and further references to the author of The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friden, and comedian David Fry. I must confess, I'd never heard of the latter. No sooner has Peter placed the receiver down than he receives another phone call, this from Robbie Robertson, editor of the Daily Bugle, offering him a photo gig. Again, Peter has to turn it down. Robbie is worried about Peter, perhaps because he knows about his side gig, who can say, but Peter makes a call of his own to Kurt Connors. This is a smart move, as Connors is the one guy who can help our hero. What isn't smart is Peter doesn't ask for help. He asks if he can stay in Kurt's house in the Hamptons, which he knows has a fully equipped laboratory. Connors agrees, but I reckon asking Kurt to pop down and help would have been the smarter play, especially given how the story pans out. Spider-Man swings over to the Long Island Railroad and catches a lift. Nice touch, Spidey's swinging is off due to his extra arms, and it takes him a while to compensate. There are also some terrible dad jokes in this sequence, which... I have to confess, I found quite amusing. Oddly, despite packing a suitcase, Spidey leaves it at home. There are further references to Spiro Agnew, apparently vice president at this time, and Anthony Perkins' starring role in Psycho, the Bates Motel being used as reference for the Connors' summer home. For reasons, Spider-Man's spider sense is tingling. This is apparently due to a fishing trawl harboured about a mile out to sea. This isn't how his spider-sense works. With a nod to the Demeter scene from Dracula, we cut to the boat. There we learn there has been a number of deaths, and one man is to blame. A strange-looking man who dwells in the engine room. A man we learn is named Morbius. He eludes the crew until nightfall, when a strange feeling comes over him. Under the cover of night, Morbius becomes more powerful than a dozen men. But with that great strength and will comes a price. A price paid in blood by a poor, unsuspecting crewman. One becomes many as Morbius kills the entire crew, his vampiric bloodlust too much for him to control. Morbius makes his way to the shore, where he happens upon a beach house. Guess who's? Morbius sleeps all day in the attic of this beach house. He awakens the next day to see Spider-Man toiling away in the basement lab, and he attacks. Spider-Man's spider-sense apparently tingled because a boat was anchored a mile offshore, but doesn't tingle at all when a genuine threat to him is asleep in the attic of the house where he is working. Okay, Roy. Spider-Man is groggy from almost two days of work, and Morbius easily defeats the wall crawler. But before he can feed, Kurt Connors arrives. The ensuing fight causes Kurt to change into the lizard again, because he's the Hulk now. Spider-Man awakens to find himself caught between the combatants. For those who are unaware, Kurt Connors is a long-time adversary of Spider-Man's called The Lizard. It's not really his fault. It was a whole thing where Connors had studied reptiles and discovered that they can regrow limbs. And he was trying to regrow the limb that he'd lost and it, he turned into a lizard. But you can pretty much see how Spider-Man's going to get rid of his limbs just by introducing the lizard, which is quite clever, really. 
You could also tell that Roy had no interest in the soap opera theatrics of the regular Spider-Man stories, because they're completely absent. Instead, we get a nice, tense little horror story. The Morbius angle is well handled and sufficiently mysterious, as we, as yet, are given no origin story. The postmodern nods, long before films like Scream would make them the stock in trade, are likewise well done. If you're in on the gag, it's a homage. If you're not, it doesn't affect your enjoyment. Roy falls down in his actual handling of Peter, which is almost even more angsty than Stan, if that's possible. Plus his misunderstanding of the Spider-Sense and the ease in which Connors turns back into the lizard. The Spider-Sense thing is easily ignored. It's not like Stan ever used it consistently. But the lizard reveal is more egregious. More setup here would have been appreciated, even if it was just a simple line of dialogue during Peter's call with Connors, in which Connors had mentioned he'd be there in a few days to help out. Still, issue 101 is a step up from issue 100, and at least it has a story. And a pretty decent one at that. Issue 102 has a story behind the story. Publisher Martin Goodman decided to pull a fast one on DC Comics. He increased the size of Marvel's books with more original material, 35 pages of story for 25 cents. DC quickly followed suit, but with reprints. Goodman's move was mixed across the entire Marvel line. Some titles got one issue in this larger format, some got two, others still got none. However, for whatever reason, Goodman switched back to 20 pages of story a month later, but increased the price from 15 cents to 20 cents. DC didn't revert back as quickly, so readers ended up giving Marvel's 20 cents books the leading market share from DC for the first time. All this mucking about resulted in some pacing issues for this issue, entitled Vampire at Large, by the same creative team as last issue. The cover for Marvel's books are all now in what would come to be called the box covers. By this I mean the art was encased in a border and the titles, logos and blurbs were outside of the box. This reduces the art on the cover substantially. Also, in the original printing of this issue, they misspelt Morbius's name on the cover as Moribus, but this has been corrected in the omnibus that I'm reading from, and I presume on all subsequent reprints. It's a rather lacklustre cover. The first time I've said that since issue 38. Spider-Man bides his time, waiting to recover, as the Lizard and Morbius beat the tar out of each other. Morbius kicks the Lizard into one of Connor's scientific machines, and the backfire electrocutes the Lizard, leaving his neck open for Morbius. Yum, 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 yum. It's at this point our hero jumps in, and Morbius flees, rather than get into another pointless fight. As he flies away, Spidey gets a spider tracer on him. It turns out that Morbius managed to get a slight taste of the lizard, and the lizard reverts partially back to Kurt Connors. Spidey theorises that if Connors can grow and lose an arm, maybe the same process can be used to eliminate his extra appendages. It's a place to start anyway, and Connors and Spidey get to work on a cure. The work leads them to the conclusion that a synthesis of Connor's serum and Morbius's enzyme may provide said cure. So, the Lizard and Spider-Man team up to tackle Morbius. Kane draws Spider-Man without the extra arms on page 10. So far, so okay. Thomas starts the story well and sets up its conclusion. The art isn't up to Kane's usual high standards here for some reason, but this concludes the first act satisfactorily. 
The problem has been addressed, a solution presented, and now we have to set about getting to that conclusion. The second act, though, is Kane and Thomas unfettered and actually telling a story they want to tell, the origin of Morbius. It's the best part of the story, a full-on horror yarn about how Morbius, actually Michael Morbius, Nobel Prize winner, became the undead thing he is now. But the comics code not really down with the whole supernatural thing, Morbius isn't really a vampire. See, it turns out that Morbius has a rare blood disease that he is desperate to find a cure for, a cure he believes may be found in the blood of a vampire bat. Hmm. Taking to the seas to ensure maximum privacy, Morbius, his assistant Nikos, and his fiancée Martine are all headed on a course with destiny. There's a really curious art gaffe on page 16. Morbius tells Nikos to never discuss the experiment they are undertaking with Martine around, ever again. Yet she's right there. Look, in panels 4 and 5, her her is still visible in both panels under the word balloons. Hmm. The experiment takes place that night. If you guessed that this would all go tits up, you guessed correctly. The mixture of the extract, or bat's blood, and the electrical creation of the blood cells causes a metamorphosis that changes Michael Morbius into a fearsome creature of the night, craving blood to survive. After accidentally killing Nikos, Morbius dives into the sea, hoping to kill himself rather than murder Martine. That's how he ended up on the ship, seen last issue. The origin is a very effective. Kane's art is at its best here, and the story is nicely sympathetic to Morbius. He didn't ask for what happened to him. There are also nice parallels in the story to Peter and Kurt Connors, both of the victims of science experiments gone awry. Granted, Peter's extra arms was because he was especially stupid, but the parallels are there. The third act is the curse and the cure, and it pretty much goes exactly how you would expect it to. There's a few subplots, such as Gwen and May fretting over Peter and Jonah worrying that the bugle is going under, but other than that, no appearances by the supporting cast. It's a very plot-heavy story. The lizard switching between having Connor's brain while still in the lizard body is a nice development, but it isn't followed up after this adventure. After a brief fight, the lizard takes the serum, and after extracting the blood needed from Morbius, he checks the serum on himself, and it changes Kirk back. But Morbius steals the vial, planning to take the serum himself before Spider-Man can take it. Spider-Man and Kurt both recognise him as Nobel Prize winner Michael Morbius, and this gives rise to Spider-Man pondering their respective situations. The confrontation results in Morbius sinking beneath the waves as Spider-Man web-shoots the vial that proves to be his salvation. The cure works, and Peter ponders his problems, which may not be that big after all compared to others. And so the extra arm saga is over, with barely a blip. It was neither the biggest change to ever happen in the life of Peter Parker, nor a damp squib. It proved extraordinarily memorable, albeit for its camp appeal more than anything else. The storyline also gave us Morbius, a character who has had remarkable legs over the years. He's a typical Marvel character, the tragic anti-hero. And I think without him, this story wouldn't be anywhere near as fondly remembered. 
is the most interesting part of it. Despite being 35 pages, the resolution to the extra arms is deeply disappointing, being wrapped up in three panels on the final page, and nothing is really made of the three central characters having a lot in common. Still, Thomas's debut as substitute teacher is neither bad nor good. It's the poster child for... Uh, it's alright. Issue 103's cover has Spider-Man swinging through the savage land with Gwen around his neck. Gog, a monster, reaches for Spidey and Gwen as Kazar, Marvel's Tarzan wannabe, prepares to hurl a spear to help Spider-Man out. It's not a bad cover, not really representative of a plot point in the issue, just representative of the story as a whole. Spider-Man and Gwen do go to the Savage Land, just they don't actually meet each other. I have to confess, though, Spider-Man being in stories that take him away from New York are to me like Brad Pitt is to Shania Twain. They don't impress me much. Having successfully gone to the horror well for the last story arc, mining Dracula and other vampire tales, Thomas goes the fantasy route for the next story. This time, though, it's King Kong he freely adapts into the pages of The Amazing Spider-Man, albeit at the suggestion of artist Gil Kane. Peter Parker will be sent to the Savage Land, Marvel's mythical land that time forgot, where he would meet Gog, named after a figure in the Bible, but taking the place of Kong. Gwen would take the Faye Ray role, and J. Jonah Jameson would occupy the Carl Denham position. Walk the Savage Land is the title, and it's one of the most offbeat Spidey shockers of all. A check the story really can't cash. The story opens with a beautiful up-the-nostril shot as Spider-Man tosses crooks around left and right. Apparently they are protection racket goons, and Spider-Man isn't down with that shit in his friendly neighbourhood. After the mop-up, and realising his quips aren't on the game because he's preoccupied with telling Gwen why he had to skip town for a few days, he swings home via the bugle. He notices Jonah burning the midnight oil, but swings up. After all, it can't concern him, right? Oh, poor, naive Peter. In the meeting, Jonah is berating his employees because he's concerned that television is cutting into his ad revenue, and if this downward trend continues, the bugle may soon be swirling down the toilet. However, the self-same television may provide the key to salvation, as some talking heads are discussing the recent appearances of a beast. The TV guys have a sketch, but Jonah decides to go one better. An article with pictures of Kazar's prehistoric playpen. For an important story like this, Jonah trusts no one but himself to tell it. But he will need a photographer. And suddenly this becomes Peter's concern. This is almost yet another one of the redemptive scenes Jonah's been receiving recently. The paper is his life, his blood. He'll do anything to save it. Even threaten Robbie with the sack if he doesn't go along with the plan. This is a bit much, to be fair, and Jonah offers Robbie a raise the next day, showing Robbie he didn't mean it. Given that Robbie is already concerned with the cost of this trip, giving him a raise seems a tad silly. Nevertheless, Jonah gets his man, Peter, the lure of cash being far too much for our hero to turn down. Gwen is understandably annoyed after him just being away for two days, but Jonah has a solution for that. Gwen can come too. After all, women read papers as well, claims Jonah. Gwen can provide the woman's angle, and a pretty face never scared any man away from the newsstand. There is logic in that. Somewhere. I do love the brevity 
of old comics. We're barely nine pages in and we're off. Yes, Roy could have spent more time with Peter and Gwen making up because Peter's excuse is terrible. I wish I could tell you why I had to go away, Gwen, but I'm afraid I can't. Let's be honest, they were going to make up, so why not just get it out the way? The trek to the Savage Land is by plane, boat and helicopter, but gotten out of the way in four panels. On the way, Jonah picks up Kalkin, the man on TV who saw the creature, before they all make landfall in the Savage Land. In but two stories, Roy has taken Spidey out of his element twice. And whilst it's not that I don't think stories like this can't work, it's that it takes Peter away from the real meat of the strip. His life, his friends, his problems, and the crime noir of it all. The only way to get around this is to do what Spider-Man Far From Home did and take all his supporting cast and problems with him. And that's not really practical here. Exploring the Savage Land is an X-Men or a Fantastic Four or an Avengers story. Not really a Spider-Man story. So, let's see if Roy can pull it off, shall we? Within seconds of landing, Jonah's got Gwen's clothes off and has her in an itsy-witsy, teeny-weeny, microscopic red bikini. So not so much the woman's angle, Jonah, rather the women's curves. To be fair, Jonah's idea here is commercially sound. His plan is to send pictures of Gwen back, use her to tease the upcoming expose on the Savage Land, and thus attract more readers. My problem with this is Murray Jane is the model, not Gwen. Murray Jane is more of an exhibitionist than Gwen ever was. And I don't know that the studious, liberated and far more conservative Gwen Stacy would be too comfortable having her bikini-clad form plastered all over the Bugle's front pages. Murray Jane would love it. Good exposure, good money and a good career move. But Gwen? Unless Gwen is doing this just to piss off Murray Jane. I can totally see that. Unusually for the era, Roy has brought back chapters to the comic, something not seen since way back in the early days. Part 2, entitled simply Gog, has Peter, Jonah, Kalkin and Gwen happen upon a tomb with an idol's head. In a scene that could be deemed a tad insensitive today, a tribe of locals approach. With their outdated language, the Neanderthal representation and simplistic ways, this is inadvertently racist. Again, it is one of those judge-it-in-the-spirit-of-the-times things, but that doesn't really make it less uncomfortable. Especially after the more forward-thinking depiction of Wakanda. Fortunately, the scene is interrupted by the appearance of the titular monster. It's a tad unusual, seeing Peter Parker with a firearm. He blasts away at the monster as it reaches for Gwen, but guns prove ineffectual and he grabs the gas bombs and runs towards the beast. Despite his amazing powers, Peter is swatted aside over the nearby cliff edge. Jonah and Kalkin believe Peter to be dead and vow to rescue Gwen, so Peter's death will not have been in vain. Of course, Peter isn't dead, and he switches to his Spider-Man costume to go after Gwen. Why? Why put his costume on? Why even bring it? This is dumber than changing to Spider-Man in London, but at least there he had a reason to do so. Here, there's no such reason. Now, again, in the spirit of the times, there was no way they would do two issues of Spider-Man that barely had Spider-Man in them. But it would have been a nice change of pace if they'd tried it. Still, Peter acknowledges that this is a dumb move, but then deduces that the creature he's following can't be dumb, because he was wearing clothes. 
Gog takes Gwen to the real villain of the piece, Craven the Hunter. This was a pleasant surprise, and a hearty well done to the editors for not ruining this reveal on the cover. Craven seems to know who Gwen is, but as far as I recall, it's all the way back in issue 47 that Craven and Gwen shared the same space, and even then it was tangential to each other. Anyway, apparently Craven as king needs a queen. Sure was lucky that Gwen came with them then. Searching for Gwen brings Jonah into conflict with Kezar, who makes a last-minute appearance, and alongside Zabu, he tells Jonah he will track Gwen down, but then they are to leave. Forever. Elsewhere, Spider-Man meets that most dreaded of 70s cliffhangers, Quicksand. If this doesn't seem like there's a lot to delve into here, well, that's because there's not a lot to delve into here. These are period-appropriate DC comics, very plot-heavy with little in the way of traditional soap opera shenanigans or secret identity goings-on. Now, obviously Roy had his hands tied. He was the supply teacher for only a few months, so his job was basically fill the pages, get the books out on time, and not really upset the apple cart. Which he did, you know, so we can't really berate him for doing his job. Even the curveballs, like part two of his Morbius story, suddenly expanding to 35 pages, and this issue suddenly contracted back to 23 pages, didn't throw him off schedule. So, we do need to give him some kudos. Spider-Man web shoots a branch to escape, but it's rotten, snaps off, falls and hits his wrist, damaging his web shooter. He completely forgets he has two web shooters, so it's up to Kazar to swing in and save him. From there, the duo, plus Zabu, decide to go and save Gwen from Gog. We cut to Gwen, and it's time for the supervillain to explain his plot. Craven explains that he was bored. He's killed everything that walks, crawls, or swims at one time or another, and he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. To this end, he decides to take Kazar out of the equation and take the Savage Land for himself. But upon arriving, Kaven happened upon a crashed spaceship. It all goes on in the Savage Land. In that ship, he found a small baby, Gog, and raised him as his own. As Gog swiftly grew to, um, Goghood, Craven vowed to take the Savage Land and become ruler of all he surveys. Spider-Man lures Gog away, crucially, without ever being seen by Craven or Gwen, and Kazar jumps in for the kill. Craven is a logical villain for Kazar, and the fight is evenly matched, but this is The Amazing Spider-Man, not Marvel Team-Up, or Astonishing Tales guest-starring Spider-Man, and as such, Spider-Man should be the headliner. Craven is even apparently killed when Kazar kicks him off a cliff. Craven is the best character in this issue, proving his worth as a villain when given the chance. This is more his environment and his boredom is played well and will be picked up by later writers, leading to the semi-classic Craven's Last Hunt. Elsewhere, Spider-Man has no idea how to deal with Gog. Fortunately, he happens upon a T-Rex, but that Rex proves no match for Gog. Spider-Man has no choice but to lure Gog back to the quicksand he nearly perished in earlier. As he sinks beneath the sand, Spider-Man sees Gog is intelligent. Our hero is sick to his stomach for killing a sentient creature, especially as he didn't need to kill him. He could have just slipped away when Gog was busy fighting the T-Rex. All that's left is the wrap-up. Kazar returns Gwen to Jonah, who swears he catches a glimpse of a figure swinging through the tree. Couldn't be. 
Peter then returns and plays the old trees broke my fall, but I was knocked out cold routine and the expedition comes to a close. Jonah complains that there are no pictures as Peter has lost his camera, but nothing in the art backs that up. Remember that. Kezar waves them goodbye as the narration tells us that this is an adventure that will be long remembered by the characters. Spoilers, it will not be long remembered by the characters. Now, I understand why Spider-Man couldn't be the main character in this story. His own story. We've just been down this route in London. Spidey can't be seen here without Gwen and Jonah realising that Peter is Spider-Man. Hell, Thomas does a great job with that, as even Kazar never meets Peter, and Craven doesn't see Spider-Man. This does lead to a continuity error in issue 111, where Craven, who did survive, in much the same way Peter claims he did, not to anybody's surprise, sees Gog dead and blames Spider-Man for it. Hmm. Overall, though, this isn't that great as a Spider-Man story. It's a good Marvel team-up, or a Kazar story where Spider-Man's a guest star, but not a Spider-Man story in his main book. Mainly because there isn't any reason for Peter to be Spider-Man in this story. He could have come across Kazar as Peter, trying to track down Gwen, lured Gog away as Peter, using his powers where no one was around. Jonah could still have thought him dead, and he could still have had the tearful reunion with Gwen. This would have been a better story. Good Spider-Man stories are just as much about Peter as Spider-Man, and Spider-Man's role here is so minimal as to not matter. Secondly, this is a monster story, not a crime noir, which is always a better fit for Spider-Man. Again, it's not that Spidey can't work in different types of stories, but it's enough of a rarity that few lists of best Spider-Man stories ever really feature this angle. Still, Gil Kane's art is pretty great, as with the horror portions of the Morbius story, he excels in the Savage Land and the Dinosaurs. Oh, and Peter never does tell Aunt May he's back from his two days away before nipping off to the Savage Land for a week. He'll only have himself to blame if he comes home and she's dead. Finally, we close out Roy Thomas's mini-run with issue 105. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking... Issue 105 is Stan's return to the book after his hiatus. Well, yes and no. It's true that Stan is credited with the story for the issue, but he didn't come up with it. In the foreword to the omnibus, Roy states that the story was actually dreamt up and plotted by he and Gil Kane as they paced up and down Kane's Manhattan studio. Stan provided the script. So the credits for this issue should read... Plotted and penciled by Gil Kane and Roy Thomas, scripted by Stan Lee, inked by Frank Gaiacoya, and lettered by Art Simak. But they don't. Roy isn't bitter about this. He says it was par for the course back then when a deadline loomed. Stan didn't think he'd make it back in time to do issue 105. Roy and Gil filled in. Stan did make it back. Roy was actually glad to be done with the book. The cover is a Gil Kane montage in between the legs of the central image, with Spider-Man seen swinging, confronting Jonah, being unmasked, the usual gang of idiots, Gwen, MJ, Harry, etc., and yet another protest march by the students of ESU. Said central images, a new, improved Spider-Slayer, this time in the shape of an actual spider. Peter Parker is still changing on the roof of his building so as to avoid Harry's lack of privacy skills. Flatly contradicting last issue, I told you to remember it, Peter's photos of the Savage Land apparently boosted the bugle's circulation. Stan, 
as scriptwriter, apparently paying no attention to Stan as editor, looking over Roy's dialogue from last issue. Whilst Jonah is on a high, Peter reckons he'll hit him up for another job. Kane's depiction of Spider-Man bouncing around New York is very, very cool. He arrives at the Bugle to see yet another demonstration. This one led by Robbie's son, Randy, who claims that in writing stories about Kazar and the Savage Land, the Bugle are ignoring the problems of minorities and the common man back home. I'm sorry, I have absolutely no problem with sticking it to the man. They frequently deserve it. But protesting a tabloid newspaper that they aren't doing enough to promote the common man, only a few issues if they took down a racist electee, Sam Bullitt, seems like a curious case of misreading the room. Now, had the Bugles supported Bullitt, then this protest would make sense. Over here in the UK, tabloid newspaper The Sun is still suffering because of its reporting, <clears throat> and I'll use that term loosely, of the Hillsborough disaster over 20 years ago, but this isn't that. In the Marvel Universe, the Savage Land is news. Still, Robbie has no problems with his son protesting his place of work. You do what you gotta do, son, he tells Randy. Jonah pulls up in his limo, and all hell breaks loose. Josh, who seems to have had a major makeover since we last saw him, gets all in Jameson's face. He calls him the head honky and screams, I got something to say and you better listen. Jonah doesn't back down. I've been fighting for civil rights since before you were born. And he pushes Josh in the face. This really catches the incendiary nature of the times. And this is what was missing from the Roy Thomas run. Stan really taps into the friction and general ur of anger, but he does it in such a way that both sides feel represented. This isn't just lip service. Jonah puts his money where his mouth is, especially in the Bullet case, and the Harry Osborne drug story, allowing Robbie to write articles that reflected and tackled the problem. By contrast, Josh has always been portrayed as an angry against a world he sees that exists solely to keep him down, and he lashes out at every authority figure, even the ones that are or would be on his side. Josh has also entered the 70s. He's ditched his round, sensitive poet specs and grown a goatee beard and let his hair grow out. Josh and Jonah aren't enemies, but when you're young, everyone is the enemy. This is great stuff. As a kid, this really made me think. This isn't as simplistic a narrative as some may think. This really let me try to understand the position of others. Josh isn't wrong. He's just lashing out. Jonah isn't wrong, he's defending his position. These issues are still relevant today if we change the names, which saddens me. Nowadays it's called SJW pandering, but it's the same thing. Denying a voice to people who are different. This was Stan not lecturing, but being provocative. It's no lie to say Peter Parker and Stanley are at least partially responsible for the man I grew up to be. Spider-Man swings in, ostensibly to help, but he ends up hanging Jonah from his balcony and makes things worse. Yes, Jonah is angry. Yes, he ticks Spidey off, but this just feeds the crowd and pushes Jonah over the edge. Jonah will take this anger out on Spider-Man. I've got something waiting for you, Jonah yells as Spider-Man swings back home. Some great writing, immediately followed by some lousy writing. Apparently, Peter completely forgot that there was a party at his own apartment and Aunt May is making the refreshments. This is dumber than a math class full of rocks. Anyone who has ever prepared a party knows that this has to have taken all day. 
Food has to be readied and prepared, laid out, decorations have to be put up. If Peter's only just remembered this, does that not mean he's put any money into it? What a Scrooge. He's not helped. He's not done anything. We also learn that Anna Watson has moved to the coast to live with her sister, leaving May alone again. But, but, but wait a minute. May was living in Anna's house. Does May still live there? Or did she go back home? Why did she not go with them? Then they could have been the Marvel Universe version of the Golden Girls and been out of our her. Anyway, the party gets underway. In other abrupt news, Flash is back from his tour of Nam and has apparently been honourably discharged, so he's back for good. Murray Jane uses this as an opportunity to make yet another play for Peter. She reasons Flash was always sweet on Gwen and says as much to Peter. I still like you, she says, leading him away from Gwen and Flash. At her ex-boyfriend's party. Class act, that Murray Jane. Harry is touched by the gesture, and overall this is a nice moment, even if Peter ruins it by thinking that Flash has a definite aura of foreboding hanging over him. That would be foreshadowing, lovely listener. As night falls, Jonah is seen hanging around some shady gaff. Inside, Professor Spencer Smythe, funded by Jonah, has created a new Spider Slayer, being as he hates Spider-Man almost as much as Jonah does. It's a new design, a sleeker robot, and more like an actual spider than before. Jonah takes it away and uses it to locate our hero, but before it can attack, it keeps stalling. Jonah is not impressed. Meanwhile, Spider-Man keeps spotting bizarre devices on the rooftops and wonders what they may be for. Suddenly, the Spider Slayer jerks back to life and attacks. Spidey recognises it instantly because it has Jonah's face on it. For some reason, he thinks Smythe can't be involved as he doesn't need the money. What? Where did Spider-Man learn about Smythe's financials? Jonah still hasn't figured out he's not in control of the Slayer as it pushes Spider-Man in the direction of a research facility filled with computers. Smythe is controlling the Slayer for he wants a specific element. He's manipulated Jonah and Spider-Man into this situation so he can steal the electronic device without ever being near the thing. Clever. Jonah thinks he's in control. Spider-Man thinks Jonah is in control. It's the perfect crime. Smythe has apparently gone insane. He's got a job as the city's scientific advisor and built the sensors Spider-Man spotted. These are supposed to be for crime prevention. But Smythe is using them to spy on people all over the city and become a master criminal. <laughs> Why? Does this follow on from any previous characterization of Spencer Smythe that we that we've read? <sighs> anyway, his first plan follow Spider-Man and discover his true identity. Spider-Man awakens and is seen by the police setting up for the crime, falling perfectly into Smythe's hands. Then Smythe's cameras follow our hero to a rooftop where he takes off his mask. To be continued. A much better issue overall than the last few, simply because it's actually a Spider-Man story with subplots, real-world events and action. Sure, there, there are problems, places where you can feel the plot creak so as to get it where Stan wants it to go, but it's, it's not too bad. I do want an explanation as to how Spencer Smythe, who knows Peter Parker, remember, doesn't recognise him when Spider-Man takes his mask off, but this story has two issues left to run, so maybe that's coming. Spoilers, 
it isn't coming. Overall, a nice return to form. Next time I do this, I'll be wrapping up Stanley's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. Born out of violence, adopted in chaos, teenager Cassandra Kane is seeking the answer to a question. If nurture can undo nature, raised to be an assassin, Cassandra is trying to burn the pages of her past and write a whole new future. So I'm throwing gasoline Avengers And I'm lighting matches with my pain Now I'm setting fire to those who've burned me As I watch my past go You can write to us at thehuntresspodcast.com or go to Twitter at Huntress Podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your other podcatchers. This podcast shares a feed with the Huntress Podcast, the Bad Girl Cassandra Kane Podcast. Cheers. Our email tonight, The Joy of the Cozy Catastrophe, which I quite like that title, Alistair Jakes. Hey, Andrew. I admit I put off your episode of Survivors, given the timeliness of the subject, but your mentioning of Day of the Triffids reminded me about how it was once described as a cozy catastrophe, and I thought I would share some of my favourites. To clarify, a cozy catastrophe is a story in which there is a post-apocalyptic scenario going on, but our heroes have an otherwise soft landing and get to begin life anew. It's a hope in dark times kind of vibe. In terms of video games, I have to recommend Fallout 4 and Subnautica, with the latter especially being a very chilled-out game, despite there being literally no other living human than yourself. For books, World War Z by Max Brooks stands out as a gem for showing how humanity can survive and overcome the worst of horrors. I feel I should also point out that there is in fact a sequel to Day of the Triffids, written sometime later called Night of the Triffids, and I remember it being somewhat fun. As far as TV series go, there is, of course, Red Dwarf. I think we forget it's a post-apocalyptic story, but it is, and the comedy is probably much needed at the moment. Finally, although I don't read comics, I feel obligated to mention Why the Last Man. All the best to you, Andrew, and to everybody listening. Well, the best to you, Alistair, and to everybody listening. Stay safe, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Hope you're all okay. Uh, That about wraps it up for this week. Um, I will be back with whatever tickles my ivories next. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think, especially as we're coming towards the end of the Stanley run of the Amazing Spider-Man. Very sad. Everything's going to be fine, hopefully. And uh, I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.